Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, June 19th, 2009. This week, episode 130 comes to you from Studio B in beautiful Coriopolis, Pennsylvania. My name is Joe Hughes or Radio Joe, and here with me in the studio is the Z Man, Cliff Zlotnick. It's always my pleasure to work with you, Joe. Good day, Cliff. We also have the lovely environmental Annie and Koalecki with us. Thanks, Joe. Good afternoon. And good afternoon to you, Annie. And back at the controls in a cameo appearance is the original CJ cyber jockey, Zach Slotnick. Hey, Joe. It's great to be here. How are you, man? Good. Good to have you. I got goosebumps just hearing his voice on there. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, is um, working in St. Croix this week. He may join us remote. We'll uh, keep our eyes on the, on the controls for him. Today's segments include the microband trivia question. We've got Dr. Charles E. Gilbert of the Epidemiology and Toxicology Institute in New York. We're going to have halftime. If uh, Brian McFarland gets his office set up in time to join us, he'll, he'll join us for halftime with the Legends Environmental Insurance uh, session and then we'll be bringing Dr. Gilbert back on for the second half and we'll go into the roundup at the end of the show. Of course we've been updating and adding a blog to that IAQ radio website every week after the show. Check it out at www.iaqradio.com but before we start we got to thank those sponsors. We are delighted to have as our first association sponsor, the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.org. Dryease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dryease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. And Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. All right, to contact the show, you just dial 724-444-7444. Our show ID is 1547. All you have to do now is press the number 1 to join the show. You can also download the show by going to our website and click on the link that says go to the show. 
follow that link, or you can also get it from iTunes now. Don't forget, we also have those IICRC Continuing Education Credits or IAQ Console Renewal Credits. Just email me and request a quiz. My email is joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. It's also on the homepage of IAQ Radio. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. We're going to turn it over to the Z-Man for Microband's trivia question for today. Thanks, Joe. Congratulations to John Lapotier of MicroShield Environmental Services of Winter Park, Florida, for answering his fifth microband trivia question last week. Remember, you can win a cool prize by outcompeting IEQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the microband trivia question. Submitting your answer is very easy. Simply email it to cliffzlotnick at unsmoked.com. Now for the microband trivia question for Friday, June 19th, 2009. Zach, the envelope, please. Name both the man who earned the moniker the father of epidemiology and the technique he used to stop a cholera epidemic in England. Back to you, Joe. All right. Well, today's guest is Charles E. Gilbert, Ph.D. and uh, principal at Epidemiology and Toxicology Institute. Dr. Gilbert is an epidemiologist and toxicologist, and uh, his area of expertise is in occupational and environmental health, especially in sensitive subgroups such as children. Dr. Gilbert was a founding member and charter member of the Environmental Biology and Public Health Section in the American Association of Bioanalysts. He was a research assistant professor at the Department of Biostatistics and Epidemiology, School of Public Health, University of Massachusetts at Amherst, Massachusetts. He also developed and was director of the Northeast Regional Lead Training Center, uh, in one of the first six centers established by the US EPA. Dr. Gilbert has been a subject matter expert for EPA's National Lead Certification Exam System and has been on technical, scientific, and medical advisory committees for the Department of Housing and Urban Development, Environmental Protection Agency, Center for Disease Control, U.S. Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry, the Alliance to End Childhood, End Childhood Lead Poisoning, and the National Center for Lead Safe Housing. We've got some intro music for Dr. Gilbert. Good day, good day, Dr. Gilbert. Do we have you on the line? Hi, this is Dr. Chuck Gilbert. Um, forgive my voice. <coughs> I'm getting over some sort of a virus. All right. Well, this week. Welcome to IAQ Radio. Um, I think this will be our first show where we start out by talking about epidemiology. And I, I'm just happy I made it through the introduction without butchering too many of the uh, <laughs> too many of the words in it there, Dr. Gilbert. But uh, 
Can we start out by asking you, what is epidemiology? Epidemiology is the detective work of disease. We, we try to figure out the who, what, the where, the when, and the why of disease. Um, and a lot of it is based on, on mathematics, but the reason why we're able to uh, use the mathematics in the study of these diseases is because we, we have uh, collected some biological data, some physical data, or some chemical data, along with some maybe some human interaction data, or some signs and symptoms that have been reported to us, uh, or in some cases, uh, uh, disease states. You know whether people have a disease or don't have a disease. I think earlier you just made mention of of uh, a Dr. Snow, and he made uh, a, a lot of use of, of that sort of thing. Um, so well. it's the detective work of disease. Fortunately, somebody actually emailed in or uh, texted in the an to correct answer to the microband <laughs> trivia question there. right before you answered it. But that's good. You enough. had it. You had it. And 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 we like it really when the guests kind of bring it up, and that, that's a good thing. Uh, I guess going to kind of segue is: Does uh, epidemiology have any role in what's going on with H one N one swine flu? Well, absolutely, um, we, because one of the things that we want to do. Um, is, first of all, you, you want to identify a case. And that depends on a, on a number of different factors. In this case, it's influenza A. And we, virtually everybody who's listening uh, knows what, what it's like to, to, to contract influenza. And it's coughing, sneezing, um, poor body aches all over, um, maybe some um, congestion in the lungs, um, headache, maybe some nausea, uh, sometimes some, some vomiting, and so they, they feel terrible. So those are some of the clinical signs and symptoms. But in order to make a determination whether we have uh, influenza or some other virus, uh, then there are a number of steps that are done in the laboratory, and, and we evaluate that in the laboratory, usually through some immunological methods, and we, we find out if it's influenza A, and then the next step would be to uh, subtype it um, as with, with respect to um, which is it a which one of the H's it is, is it for example, and then uh, which one of the the N's is it? In this in this case, this this organism is H1N1. Um, so that's the first step. The the next, so we 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 are able to classify something as a case or a non-case, and from there we try to identify. Um, where those individuals are located, so we can see if there's some sort of a, uh, a pattern going on with respect to the, the people who are, are diagnosed with this disease. And then uh, subsequent to that, we might go in and pull out some of the data with respect to either the, um, the, the, the possible routes of exposure in an individual and how they, they came to come with this disease. And then um, furthermore, uh, any of the unusual signs and symptoms, and also their 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 age, their sex, um, their health status, um, uh, their their nutrition status, um, and past disease history, and all those things can help us in understanding this. And uh, both the the Centers for Disease Control and the World Health Organization are collecting a lot of data data on this right now. And I sh I shouldn't overlook the fact that the a Pan American Health Organization is also collecting some information on these individuals, so that you can include those who are, 
and exclude those individuals who are not uh, individuals who have the H1N1 flu. It sounds like this would be a, a fairly expensive proposition to undertake here. Is this uh, doing an epidemiological study, is that a terribly expensive thing? Yes, they're very expensive. You figure every time you interact with, with an individual on this, uh, uh, someone's paying for that individual to, uh, to either enter data, collect the blood sample, analyze the blood sample, transport the blood sample, um, enter the data, evaluate the data, and then um, write a report on it. And so the, all those things are expensive. And usually epidemiological studies um, cost probably no less than, than a fraction of a million dollars and usually multiples of millions of dollars to do these things. I, I have no idea how much has been spent on the H1N1 to date, um, but with just those organizations, uh, CDC, the uh, World Health Organization, and Pan American Health Organization, I, I suspect it's uh, in the tens of millions of dollars just to provide some good public health efforts for us in this. When we talked the um, the other evening, you mentioned um, a study that I know a lot of our listeners are familiar with, and that was um, done back in Cleveland when when they had the uh, the children who came to uh, Dr. Dearborn's um, clinic, and they were having these uh, pulmonary hemorrhage um, issues, and at first it was thought that it may be the stachybotrys that caused this. And you had an interesting comment about the epidemiology on that. Could you repeat that for our listeners? Sure. Um, what happened was when, um, when the data come out, everybody uh, said, oh, well, this is pretty interesting. We better take care on this and watch out for this particular organism. That would be the stachybotrys. And I can't recall if they called it Atra at that time or Chatarum, but regardless. Um, so there were some people who looked at at the the study design and the the analysis and interpretation of the data and said you know we we'd like to check on this if you don't mind um so i i believe the national academy of sciences got got together a panel of epidemiologists and they looked at the data and they evaluated the data and they came up with a, a couple of different findings which were um very very revealing but, the first item that they come up with, <coughs> excuse me, is that um, they found that uh, w when they analyzed the data, according to the authors and the investigators' uh, direction or let's say protocols, they they did not find a relationship between the, um, the hemosiderosis and the uh, the Stachybotrys chatarum. Um, but they did find a relationship between um, the mother smoking and the amount of the mother smoking um, and the, the, the bleeding lungs. Alternatively, when the, when the scientists looked at the data using their own ideas and concepts about um, how to control, how not to control, and how to uh, evaluate the data, uh, they found no relationship whatsoever with anything. So um, it, it goes, and these are pretty, some pretty uh, august epidemiologists. And so it just goes to show that uh, science is not easy, and it doesn't come out of a cookbook. And it takes a lot of people um, thinking very, very clearly and carefully about how you, um, how you start the study right from the very beginning, how you collect the data, 
um, why would you even collect the data, um, how you collect the samples, how you uh, uh, maintain custody of, the, of them, how you transport them, how you evaluate them in the laboratory, and then entering the data and evaluating the data finally. So each and every step can, can be its own challenge in its own particular batch of science. Okay, we, we've got a couple text questions already. I just want to let our listeners know they're going to fit in real nicely in a moment here. But first, I want to go to Environmental Annie with a question. Yeah, thank you for explaining epidemiology, but what is toxicology? Mm. The toxicology is the, the, the study of uh, biological, chemical, and physical agents on, uh, let's call it, um, living systems. It can be bacteria, fungus, uh, it can be um, um, amoeba, it also can be um, worms, <laughs> it can be insects, um, and any impact that a biological, chemical, or physical agent has on any sort of living system uh, can be classified in the area of toxicology. My, the particular area that, that I am most fond of and I have focused in on is human toxicology. So, is that helpful? It's very helpful. And we've got a text question from a listener to follow up to that. Cliff? Uh, is there any role in indoor air exposures for the concept of hormesis, which roughly translates into a little poison makes no difference? Oh. Very interesting. I, I did study um, hormesis with, uh, with my, um, my graduate school advisor and, and mentor, uh, Dr. Edward Calabrese, and he uh, continues to be quite fond of hormesis. Um, I, think, I, I think that hormesis probably goes into the range of uh, what, um, what Paracelsius said when, when he was um, getting involved in toxicology, and he's considered to be the, the godfather, the grandfather in toxicology. And what he said, and I may be ruining this, this quote, he said that um, all substances are poisons, and there are virtually no substances that are not poisons, and it is the dose that di differentiates uh, remedy from poison. Mm -hmm. um, so with the hormesis concept, we have uh, little tiny doses of things that we would consider to be uh, toxic substances, and they actually um, provide a beneficial effect. Now, if we take that um, to day-to-day to -day activities, and I, I don't want to exclude this from indoor air quality, but I want to set the stage for this. Um, with, with something like an analgesic such as aspirin or Excedrin or, or whatever your favorite analgesic is, if you take the right dose of this analgesic to remove your aches and pains. And if you don't take enough, you don't get an effect. So that's below the effective dose. And then if you take uh, more and more, you get up to a point where you secure a toxic dose. Now, the, the, I think hormesis plays a role in indoor environmental quality. However, we really don't have any clues whatsoever about what doses is. And this is part of the stuff that vexes me on a... On a um, probably close to an hourly basis, not a daily basis. What is the dose of a particular agent that will cause an impact, and is that impact bad? And would you add, is that dose from that particular agent somehow 
in combination with doses from other agents causing some type of impact? Oh, that, that's an interactive effect. Okay. Uh, or, and, and they also, uh, the, the toxicologists are, are weighing in on that with respect to mixtures. And mixtures are handled in their own particular way. Uh, sometimes they're, they're, they're pooled, um, additive. Sometimes they're taken individually. Okay. Now, on your, um, on your website, you describe some of the work you're doing, you do now in um, going out and assisting <coughs> clients with um, indoor air quality and disaster restoration type situations, and, and you do some forensics. Can you explain to our listeners what you mean by forensics? Oh, um, yes. Uh, forensics is, uh, I, I think it's probably short for something called forensic sciences. And it's, uh, it would be any group of sciences, or if someone has a particular group of sciences, that they use to help understand a legal question. And that's simply what it is. We've, we've gone a little bit further in, uh, in trying to make it into its its own area outside of the legal aspects. But the, the definition itself um, discusses uh, forensics with respect to um, uh, trying to help answer a legal question. Okay, Cliff? Is there a standardized investigative process uh, that you use, you know, in, in investigating uh, some sort of alleged health incident within a building? I, <coughs> excuse me, I have, I have tried to answer this question from the outside world. Um, I, in fact, I don't think it's on my uh, nightstand right now, but for about three weeks, I had the um, FBI investigators uh, forensics handbook um, next to my bed, which I would read from time to time to take a look and, and see what, what their suggestions are. And their suggestions pretty much circulate on um, ensuring that your evidence is um, of high quality that and that you document where you get your evidence and that the evidence is handed from one responsible individual to another responsible individual. Um, and so that's the, what I've seen from taking a look at the, the FBI handbook at, at, the, at the current point. For, with respect to what I do when, when we do our evaluations, and um, I, when I write reports, I don't talk about forensics, to be honest with you, but I, I actually I do talk a lot about science, and I, in fact, do the scientific method. Um, and what that is, is first, try to understand what the subject is that you're talking about. Whatever, if you're going into doing a sample um, for, a, um, for an indoor environmental investigation. So we want to figure out what it is that we want, what's the question that we want to answer. We want to, you want to pose a hypothesis and try to um, figure out a way to answer that hypothesis, that question that you have. So you need to get a good understanding of what it is that you're looking at. And let's say we're trying to figure out what, um, um, what group of chemical compounds, or if there's a group of chemical compounds, that may be in an environment that people might be um, affected by. So first you need to know what those are and how they act in that particular environment. Do, do, they, do they interact with one another? Do they interact with sub other substances that are there? 
um, and what is going to play a role in their interactions in the environment that they're in. And next, you've got to figure out your sampling protocol and, and, uh, and design. How are people exposed to these particular compounds? Are they in the atmosphere? Are they in the atmosphere, what we call um, from time to time or episodic? So that it pops up now and it kind of falls out, and then it pops up again, and then it kind of falls out. Are they in the atmosphere um, uh, uniformly distributed? Um, something that's in the atmosphere uniformly distributed and we take for granted would be the amount of oxygen that's in the atmosphere and the amount of nitrogen and the amount of carbon dioxide. Those stay pretty uniform throughout the atmosphere. If we're talking about other other gases, if we're taking taking a look at gases uh, or, or carbon monoxide, shall we say, that is not necessarily uniform until it's been spread out from from other sources and been mixed a great deal. But if we're inside an environment and we see a, a peak in carbon monoxide, then we say, hmm, there must be some incomplete combustion going on here. So we can see that. Um, and then the, the next step that we want to do after we figure out um, what it is that we're looking for and how we're going to sample, sample for it, then we have to collect those samples very, very carefully. And depending on what the, what the, the particular um, instrument that we're using to collect it, whether it's a handheld instrument or some field tubes or some um, uh, vacuum sample bags, as, as I, I like to do. Well, oh, let, me, let me just say that the vacuum sample bags would not be used for, for gases. Um, so let me stick with the gases so we won't get confused here. Um, so we've, we've got all these different protocols and sampling procedures that we can use to sample for these gases. So then we, we have to be careful that we follow the procedure that has been laid out in science or um, has been picked up by the, the uh, uh, National Institutes of Occupational Safety and Health or has been picked up by the, uh, the, the OSHA people and has been standardized, and we want to make sure we stay within those lines when we do that, and then sample for the, the recommended period of time. And in some cases, it's a very, very long time. So then we collect our samples. Then, then we take them into the laboratory, and we want to, we want to make sure that we have a, a quite an excellent laboratory. And uh, so you want to vet the laboratory to make sure that they're excellent. I don't recommend that you go necessarily with the lowest bidder, but I think you need to know who the, the chemists are in the laboratory who do the analysis. So that's an, another step that's very, very important to me. And then <clears throat> um, when the, the samples come in and the laboratory results are, have concluded, then you have to, to lay them out, maybe in a pattern. Um, maybe you want to lay them out in a cross-section uh, across the area that you've sampled them from to see if they, um, they show you any pattern whatsoever. Um, and uh, is there a time uh, issue that's involved with this as, as well? Um, do, do, do your samples show any relationship between the concentrations that you've sampled and the time period that you got? So you got location and time um, to, to consider when you're trying to do your uh, preliminary evaluation of the data. And then you run the data through further evaluation. Now, if you have hundreds of thousands of samples and data points, then you have to go to, you're going to have to run this stuff through computer analysis. <clears throat> okay. I think I've run on for a great deal there. Okay. 
So, so you've got no, – actually, it was – I'd like to uh, use that down the road. It's, it's well, very well explained. And then once you've interpreted your results, uh, they either prove or disprove, I guess, your hypothesis. And then if they prove it, you make your recommendations? Oh, well, there's, there's very few things that either prove or disprove. Okay. And what it is, it's, it's more, more likely and less likely. And that's when, when you take a look at the statistical books and they talk about the, uh, the, the, the 95% confidence interval. You may have heard that. Oh, yeah. Some people say, well, we're 95% confident in these results. Well, that's, that's not the way it is at all. <laughs> What's really interesting is that um, the way you discuss a 95% confidence interval is you say, well, we're about 5% confident that the results that we have here are not due to chance. Hmm. Yeah, right. You're kind of backing into it. And that's really the way that you really have to present data, um, because it's and it, it, because it's just not solid enough. You can't you can't make uh, uh, exacting um, relationships. You have to make associations as best you can. And if we're talking about the indoor environmental quality uh, issues, it's even more difficult uh, because we're we're collecting samples in an area where it's it's not specific. It's very very um, um, let's say squishy. It's very, very ragged on the outside. It's not. It's not well defined. And then uh, we don't know dose-response relationships. I guess we know a, a little bit of them, but we we don't know them very well. And um, so what I see is I see um, an association between the findings that we have <clears throat> and the the um, signs and symptoms that have been reported to us. That's a that's an excellent. Thank you for correcting my uh, terminology there. I like that, and I'll use that in the future. Um, Dr. Gilbert, um, it is actually halftime here, so we're going to take a short break, and we're going to bring you right back. Well, thank you. Thank you. Today's halftime break, break. is sponsored by <laughs> CJ, who's back in his desk, the cyber jockey. Where have you been, cyber jockey? I have been working at Google Pittsburgh for the past year and a half now. Congratulations. It's good to have you back in your old chair again. And uh, <laughs> hopefully we'll here. bring you back. And the wingman who most of you are familiar with is taking the week off, Chris Boisel. But uh, before we get back to Dr. Gilbert, let's thank those sponsors. We're delighted to have as our first association sponsor the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Okay, and we want to thank our advertisers as well Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Pro Restore for cleaning, odor removal, and antimicrobial products, remediators trust and depend on. Visit them at prorestoreproducts.com. And of course, our sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dries Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged 
buildings and homes. Dries is first in drying solutions. Visit them at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at G-A-O-N-D-O-N.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. All right. Looks like we've got a short halftime today, which is good because we're barely into our questioning with Dr. Gilbert. Dr. Gilbert, are you back on the line with us? Hello, Dr. Gilbert. Do we have you back? Oh, yes, I'm here. I, I, have a, I have a question that you might want to throw out to folks when, when you were talking about uh, Dr. Snow earlier. Um, you might want to ask them what it was that he did and what impact did that have on what particular disease um, in London? All right. We will. We may have to use that as a future microband trivia question. Although maybe we'll do a bonus on that. What do you think? Yeah, we could do a bonus. We could do a bonus. We've got some new prizes coming in. So if anybody can pick that up, uh, we'll get you out a bonus prize. A nice one, by the way. Thanks to uh, the Indoor Air Quality Association. All right. Let's continue on here. We were talking about investigations and your investigative process. I know you were talking about gases, but um, you also mentioned a type of sampling that. I'd like you to describe a little bit better for me and, and tell us a little bit about why you like to use vacuum samples. Mm. <clears throat> I, I use um, a special um, um, allergen vacuum bag uh, when we do uh, samples for a lot of our indoor environmental work. Um, it's because when I was taking a look at um, all the different um, sampling that's going on today, um, and this was, oh, gee whiz, I think about nine years ago um, when I f- first started thinking really critically about it. I received some data that had come back, and I took two outdoor air samples um, right on top of one another um, and um, in succession. So I just took one set of air samples and then loaded another set of air samples in it. And these were, these were viable. They were on plates on an N6 air sampler. And they were uh, two orders of magnitude apart with respect to organisms. And I said, wow. Well, what we, we had thought that stuff on the outside was kind of all mixed up nicely. And, and this shows me that it's not. And so I started taking a look at da- data that I had collected previously, and then I started keeping an eye on it. And as as I as I went on, and I said, you know what? I I really don't um, I don't think the air samples show me what I really wanted to show me, which is what's the dose, because that's what I want to know. I want to know what the dose is, and because of that, um, I said, well, how am I going to figure out what the heck the dose is? And during the, the course of that evaluation and deliberation, I came up with uh, vacuum sampling. And at first, I just got some. Um, just vacuum bags and we uh, normal vacuum bags and we use those. Uh, then I used the hand vacuum bags and those weren't particularly fun either um, because the, we would get uh, let's say a, a big bag with a little little bit of material in it and gets dispersed. And so then finally I used allergen bags which are uh, smaller, compact and they do the job for me. I use them for a, a 
biological, chemical, and physical analysis when I go out there. And I'll, I'll take a, a sample of, of uh, vacuum, and if we want to know what's going on in a space, we will vacuum um, the huge surface area. I don't want to say the whole floor, but virtually the whole floor. And then when I sample other ones, you'll, you'll hear me diverge from this a little bit. So if we want to know what's going on with respect to microbes in the area, we'll, we'll collect the sample bags, and then we'll analyze them. Uh, and they'll be cultured, and I'll culture them for bacteria as well as uh, fungus. Um, and <coughs> also my laboratory identifies for me pathogens, and pathogens are um, disease-causing organisms, of which there are two different types of pathogens, by the way. There are um, obligate pathogens. Uh, which which means that they they're pretty much um, pathogens the the whole time, um, and they they're rarely not pathogens. And then there's another group of pathogens, and if you want to give them a human quality, they're a little more sneaky. They're called opportunistic pathogens, and they kind of take over when when the defenses of the host go down or the defenses of the human go down. And uh, we see that with um, uh, Staph aureus is one of those uh, ones that are opportunistic. So that when the when you get a breaking in the skin, um, the the uh, Staph aureus, or you get a breakdown in the defense mechanisms of humans, the Staph aureus will go in and cause a pretty serious infection. The, what people might know as so-called Staph infections. So regardless, um, the we. We take these samples, and I take a look at the bacteria and the fungus, and um, based on uh, some preliminary data that was collected by a couple of investigators a number of years ago, and based on the, the body of data that we've collected, we have an idea of, of what's getting, let's say, more dirty uh, than, than less dirty. Um, and then we take a look at the pathogens. Are there any pathogens pop up? And if the pathogens pop up in a substantial fraction of the sample that we've collected, then we say, there's some sort of a, a, a problem going on here, and it really needs to be cleaned up. Um, we do the same sort of thing with, with chemistry. If I'm taking a look at chemistry in, uh, uh, in an indoor environment, however, th this thing doesn't work very well for gases. Uh, works best for um, some volatiles, semi-volatiles, and uh, other organic compounds, and it works pretty well for heavy metals as well. And so we, and our our relationship here, by the way, is um, if it's the bacteria, then it's colony-forming units per gram of substance collected. And we can even work that out if we want to do a floor calculation, which we have in the past. But we found that the floor, the surface area calculation, along with the colony-forming units per gram it doesn't provide us um, any better information. So we just go with the colony-forming units per gram um, for the bacteria as well as the fungus. And then the, for the chemicals, we look for um, micrograms of the substance per gram of material on the floor. And then for physical agents, um, what I do with those is we uh, send them to the laboratory, and the laboratory goes in two directions. One, I would like to know what the particle size distribution of the stuff on the floor is, um, because there are certain particle sizes that I'm concerned with uh, getting into the respiratory tract, and those would be particle sizes less than 10 micrometers. 
and then the particle sizes less than 5 micrometers in diameter, those particular um, particles will go deep into the lungs, into the alveoli. The, the alveoli has a little gas sacs um, inside, the, inside the lungs, and that's where we actually have the gas exchange. Um, so I like to know what the particulate size is in there, and if there's a great deal of dust and it's a particular size that'll go into the upper respiratory airway, then I know that I have something that can cause some uh, respiratory distress, coughing, sneezing, <coughs> excuse me, maybe some, um, maybe some irritation. It might even elicit an asthma response. Um, so I'll look at that, and then uh, in addition to that, I'll have the laboratory uh, try to characterize it uh, with, with, through morphology. What does it look like to them? They'll look at it under the microscope and, and tell me what it looks like. It, I, we've got some um, uh, gypsum dust or concrete dust or fur or hair um, or some uh, natural fibers or some synthetic fibers. And or every once in a while they'll find some asbestos too, and they'll they'll report that back to us. And then the 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 other stuff that that I'll take a look at would be the um, uh, the, the chemistry uh, for it, I, the um, the metals. I think I've already said that. Now, if I take more than one sample in in a room, then we we stripe the room. We'll do one one foot um, section across the whole length of the carpet and put microbes in that. And then another foot will collect a sample, and we may do allergens in that. And another stripe across the section, that will be um, the organic chemicals. Another one would be the inorganic chemicals. And then the final one would be the particulate. So if, if, we, if we didn't have a clue what was going on and we thought that any one of these might play a role in this, then we would do that and, and follow the way. And then some other sampling, um, we might do some air samples on some of these if some of the organics are going to stay in the atmosphere for a longer period of time. Um, or, um, or some particulates, we'll do some particulate sampling, um, either with a, um, uh, the occupational safety and health um, cassettes, or we'll use a, a particle counter over there. Now, how's that? That's good. Very good. Very detailed, and what we'd like to do is I want to turn it over to Cliff because we've got a pretty wide base of people that listen here, and I think he has a couple questions for our disaster restoration. Team. Yeah, we do, Doctor. Have you ever been asked to try to differentiate between hurricane or storm damage from flood damage? Hurricane or storm damage from flood damage? I, uh, well, my question would be how do you uh, – does the flood occur because of the storm? You know, is is it is it water that has uh, come across the ground and then flooded into the, the structure? Is, is that one way, or has the structure been opened up and had the water come in? Um, and in in some cases, you can't tell the difference. Mm -hmm. The only way you can tell the difference between, I mean, it's water. It's it's H two O and Usually there aren't a lot of things dissolved in it. It comes from above, although there's some dust and uh, a few few chemicals dissolved in it. But it, once it goes across the ground, then it's got a whole host of things and some microorganisms in it as well that we can take a look at. Mm -hmm. So it, it, that's a that's a hard thing to do. Tell the difference between stuff that's gone across the ground and stuff that's come from the sky. 
Uh, do you ever use uh, what's known in the industry as moisture mapping in your building investigations? Oh, we use those extensively. Um, and um, I'm very fond of um, moisture meters that can use ultrasound in the pins <clears throat> at the same time because I compare the two when we when we do the evaluation and they're really not the same. It's interesting. The values are not are not the same. It appears as though that the the pin values in the same instrument the pin values are, are a little bit higher than the uh, the ultrasonic values. And when you map do your moisture mapping, what uh, how do you break up the the building or the home? Mm, we we do it about every nine square feet. We we take a value. That means we take hundreds and hundreds of values. So we can figure out what's going on, and, what, and it, it tells us a nice story about what's going on with respect to the water in the building. <laughs> how do you ensure that you're measuring um, the, the same place again? I mean, do you put tape on it or a mark on the wall, or you know, is there any? So some people use little dots, different colors, and things like that. Is there a, 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 a preferred way that you like to do it? Um. You'll have to ask me some more stuff. You mean, do I want to uh, take a moisture value at this particular spot um, in, um, in, let's say, today? And then tomorrow, and then you know, like over. And then, and then tomorrow, go back. And, um, we, we take, no, we don't mark it. Okay. We don't mark it, and the reason is because we take so many values. Uh, but we do mark it, we do mark it on, our, um, on our map. We actually map out the room, mm -hmm. okay. um, and it depends on how uh, how big the project is. Um, we use schematic drawings um, and architectural drawings if if it's very large. Um, if it's not very large, or we don't have architectural drawings, then we actually uh, draw a um, draw it out on on a sheet of paper and map it out there. Um, and then if we have if we have a wall or some sort of a component that's particularly curious or interesting, we'll we'll hone in on that and actually map that component. Dr. Gilbert, I'd like to uh, jump over to lead because I know you have an extensive background in, in lead and in, in lead work. <laughs> and um, one of the questions I wanted to uh, first bring up in, or ask is, since uh, EP, well, I don't know if it was EPA, I can't remember who, but um, since gasoline, lead in gasoline has been removed, has that helped in bringing down blood lead levels in children? Do you continue to see those levels going down? What type of impact do you think that has had? And then maybe you could tell us about what you think we need to do from here to continue on that trend. Okay. Uh, the... Um <clears throat> the uh, the lead in gasoline has had a huge impact on all our blood lead levels. Um, it it is probably other than sanitation of water, it's one of one of the biggest impacts on a population in the United States um, because of the and it was the Environmental Protection Agency that did that. Which, by the way, the Environmental Protection Agency was um, proposed and put into law by President Nixon, uh, who also put OSHA into play, too. 
So uh, it, when the Environmental Protection Agency said, we're going to control lead and gasoline, um, and this is how we're going to do it, they did. And um, during this time period, um, I was a student at, um, at, at a college, and um, also at the time period, I worked for the Massachusetts Department of Public Health Childhood Lead Poisoning Prevention Program. And we watched over time as the blood lead levels of the, the, uh, the population of children, both in urban areas and in suburban areas, um, literally plummet. And if you take a look at the data, you can see them plummet. It is, I re recall that when we used to take a look at the, the average uh, blood levels of the group of the population. And by the way, this what we're discussing now are, are epidemiological techniques. Uh, we'd take a look at the blood levels of the population. We'd see that the urban population had um, median or average blood lead levels of somewhere between uh, 15 up to 25 micrograms per deciliter of whole blood. And then in the, um, that was in the urban areas. And in the suburban areas, they, they went down by about 10. So they were, they were about uh, 10 uh, micrograms per deciliter to up to maybe 15 micrograms per deciliter. Um, and again, uh, if you know blood blood levels, you say, boy, these are, these are really, really, really high blood blood levels because we don't accept those levels there today. But the, the good work by the Environmental Protection Agency and um, whoever else was involved in this uh, to make sure that we uh, brought the atmospheric blood levels down um, made a big difference in all of our lives. So that was the first first thing that was done in that regard. And, and in addition to that, um, the Food and Drug Administration said, well, you can't have um, any more than this amount of lead in appliances because appliance um, coatings were contained lead. And the um, Consumer Product Safety Commission said, well, you can't have too much lead in, um, in a number of other um, consumer products, crayons, uh, such as the um, plastic toys that kids use, such as the, um, what else they come into? Um, oh, oh, the uh, mini blinds they come in to. Um, so we've got the Food and Drug Administration doing food, Consumer Product Safety Commission doing um, little gizmos that we handle from day to day, the Environmental Protection Agency coming in and doing um, uh, air, and then in the um, sort of like the, the mid-'80s, they decided the Environmental Protection Agency said decided that they would do um, water. And that one really surprised me because that was the first time the Environmental Protection Agency sort of stepped foot inside someone's house. And they said that um, through, through a rule called the lead and copper rule, they said you can't have any more than, than, uh, than this amount of uh, lead in, in the drinking water inside a house. And you can't have any more than this amount of copper. Um, inside the house, and, and so they stopped in that. So, so that now now we've got to water, and then uh, later than that, the Environmental Protection Agency said we're going to do something about lead and paint, and then they developed these regional lead training centers, and they taught people how to do lead paint abatements for children who uh, were poisoned or um, uh, you might want to call it elevated blood lead levels, 
And so they took care of them that way. And this was another step inside the house. And they said, this is the way that we want you to, uh, to do uh, lead paint, lead-based paint abatement. And um, along with the Environmental Protection Agency, the uh, Housing and Urban Development Agency developed what they call the HUD guidelines, which um, is a huge manual on how to do it safely, how to correct these buildings safely. And then more recently, um, I believe as of uh, April 2009, uh, the, a new uh, aspect takes place, and EPA t- has taken responsibility and taken charge of this, and they call it EPA's Lead-Based Paint Renovation, Repair, and Painting Program. And the first step of that uh, starts now, and that means that anytime some individual who is a contractor, renovation, or repair person, anybody who disturbs a lead-painted surface um, has to do some education requirements, which means you have to give the, the families that you're interacting with a, a special lead pamphlet that's available from the EPA. And then, as of April 2010, um, people who do contracting work inside houses inside a building that um, contains lead paint are going to have to be uh, certified and all the individuals who work in there can be trained. So I'm, I'm stunned about the, the extent that EPA has taken uh, to do this. I, I'm glad because um, children have been poisoned from renovation repair um, of, of lead painted surfaces because it's been done a little bit carelessly. And it's not only children, but um, Mom and dad and some pets as well have been poisoned, and the houses have been uh, contaminated somewhat. And once you contaminate it, then you have to clean it up and you know, figure out where it's, where it's messed up. I think that leads into yeah, was a that question. Helpful? That helps Very a great helpful. deal. I think uh, Environmental Annie has a question. Then we're going to go into a roundup. We might go about five minutes over. Do you, can you stick with us for that long? Sure, I'll do that. Great, thank you. <laughs> Annie? Excuse me. Uh, my question is, what kind of remedial methods have proven effective to remedy lead contamination in these homes? Okay. Um, well, it, it, de- it, depends on, um, it depends on whether you want to uh, answer this question with respect to what, what a number of people believe or what the science takes a look like. Um, with respect to the science, um, the, the, the following things I believe to be quite true. One is you really have to control the amount of uh, uh, chipping, flaking, peeling paint that's inside a unit, and you have to control the uh, deterioration of this paint to a dust. Because once it becomes a dust, then people will, will pick it up in some way. And this is a hand-to-mouth activity. Uh, chiefly because the the dust is too large to inhale. If it get if the dust gets to a size that you know we think we can inhale, what happens is that it gets captured by the respiratory system, and in some cases it may enter the respiratory system a little bit, but the uh, it'll be captured on the mucus and then it'll um, go up uh, through the uh, through the cilia and then it'll be swallowed. Um, so this dust chiefly is an ingestion exposure. Now, 
that means anytime you do something in a house that uh, breaks the surface, and that's why the renovation remodeling uh, program is so really important. Anytime you break a surface in the house, then you're going to um, create the opportunity for a significant loading of lead-based paint to come in. And let me let me do a comparison that's not often made. When we're talking about uh, sources of lead in the environment, the lead-based paint is probably the most significant high-dose source of lead that's inside a building. Um, when when folks measure lead in paint on surfaces, and in most dwellings, the majority of the lead paint is going to be on the wood trim surfaces and not on the wall surfaces, except when you get to the bathrooms and the kitchens and the pantries, and then there's going to be more lead paint. And also, this is pre-1978 as well. Um, when when But back to the, the important point with respect to the concentration of lead on, on the surfaces. When we measure the lead on the, on the surfaces, we use uh, an X-ray fluorescence analyzer, which presents the data to us in something called milligrams per square centimeter. And a square centimeter is approximately the size of, of uh, let's say, a, a, a fingernail that's um, has where the fingernail stops at the end of the finger, not where it protrudes any further than that. So one square centimeter is about that big. It's not quite a half an inch by not quite a half an inch. And we measure the units in milligrams per square centimeter with these X-ray fluorescence analyzers. And based on the, the research that I've done and in, in, um, looking at the literature, um, in older houses, let's say a house that was built before 1950, the concentration of lead in paint is measured, we're going to find it, it between 20 um, milligrams per square centimeter and 70, 80, or 90. Now, l let's just convert that for ourselves from uh, 20, and we'll pick a number in the middle. Let's call it 30. Not in the middle, but it's good enough. Um, 30 micrograms per square centimeter. Now, if we convert that to a dose that we usually talk about with respect to exposure for adults and children, we convert that to micrograms, so we multiply that number times 1,000. Now we're talking 20,000 micrograms of lead paint in, in one square centimeter, not a half an inch by not a half an inch. Now, kids uh, who are less than um, three years of age cannot metabolize, cannot handle, cannot excrete any more than about 120 micrograms of lead per day. So once you put in a little tiny chip of paint, you see you've started to overload the system in a, in a, a really terrible way. And as you do that, you're just going to build up more and more lead inside the, the body, and, and, the, and the body's going to have to handle that. And, and w when the lead levels stay up for any significant period of time, we, we start to get injury in, uh, in children and in adults as well. So the best thing is to take that out? The best thing is to prevent it from breaking. Okay. Should you take it out? This is a debate across, uh, across the country. Um, Massachusetts has the most uh, stringent uh, childhood lead poisoning prevention laws in the United States. And they think that uh, all lead-based paint below, I think it's five feet right now, um, should be removed. Uh, at, at, if there's a lead poison child, that's what they believe. Well, actually, they go further than that. Any house with a child in it, 
that should have the lead-based paint from five feet down removed. Um, now, I don't know if the data bears that out completely, um, but what I do know is this, that the data do bear out that if, if the surfaces are not kept um, very hard, tight, and bright, then the, the possibility for lead exposure uh, increases substantially. So the way to prevent lead poisoning in individuals from home um, painted surfaces is to make sure that the surfaces are, are tight and bright. Uh, now, there are a certain number of individuals, some children, who have uh, extra oral activity, and those kids may chew on windowsills or any sort of uh, protrudence from a 90-degree angle. And so you have to watch for that. So if you see any um, any bite marks or chew surfaces on on uh, different building components, then you have an, another aspect that you have to address. You're going to have to uh, figure out a way to either isolate the lead from the child or remove the paint from the environment. So the answer is how to control it. If we're talking about the paint, um, it, it has to be controlled by maintaining the integrity of the paint surface or... Uh, removing the paint from the surface or separating the surface from us. I mean, you could do that with some sort of a barrier, like an epoxy that might work. Okay? Excellent. Listen, we, uh, we are running a little over, so we're going to skip the roundup, but I want guest two, I want to thank guest two for hanging in there. He had a question early on, he or she, I don't know. And uh, <laughs> what we're going to do is we're going to let the Z-Man handle that question, and then we're going to wrap things up for today. Okay. Um, what is raccoon roundworm, and should people with an active raccoon infestation in their attic be concerned about it? Oh, raccoons. Um, yes. The, the roundworm that we're, we're concerned with here is um, the scientific name, the genus and species, is Bailus ascaris procyonis. And it's, it's common in raccoons. However... Just like um, other epidemics that we have in the world, there are certain colonies of raccoons where the incidence of this Bailus ascaris procyonis is higher. It might reach 80 or 90 percent. Um, and in some, some other populations, it's near zero. So the, the first thing to try to, I guess, ask yourself if you're doing this, and I actually ask myself later, but if I find out a raccoon's been in there, we want to sample and do an evaluation to find out um, what, what's going on. And then I send my samples off to a, uh, a uh, veterinary uh, pathologist to, uh, to take a look at the, at the samples to, to find out if the uh, Bailus ascaris is in there. The reason why it's so important to us is that uh, if, if you ingest these roundworms, and so that means you have to get this uh, roundworm, which, which, by the way, comes from the, the, the feces of the raccoon. It's an intestinal parasite in the raccoon. And then they defecate somewhere, and then the, the, uh, the roundworm eggs uh, stay in the feces, and then they, they go into, if they're in the attic or in the eaves of the, of the house, then, then we'll, you'll have some um, feces in there. And if, if during the process of cleaning up, um, someone gets exposed by getting these eggs in their mouth. They swallow. It goes into their GI tract. 
um, then then they then the um, the egg will hatch, and the larvae will um, will be released. And the larvae, unfortunately, has this nasty habit of burrowing through the GI tract and then um, burrowing through other organs in the body. And it, in some cases, it burrows and resides inside the eye, nervous tissue, central nervous tissue, and brain. Um, so it, it's um, really, really serious infection um, if someone gets it. Now, on the other hand, uh, the, the incidence of infection with the um, Bayless Ascaris procyonides in the human population right now, I believe in the past 20 years we've had 30 or 40 cases, and the vast majority of those cases have been in individuals who are either less than five years of age or are um, have into intellectual capacity of those less than five years of age. Doctor, um, you had mentioned one thing about taking a sample to a veterinary pathologist. Um, what sort of sample would that be? A sample of the fecal matter? Would that be an ear sample? Would that be a swab sample? Would that be a dust sample? What kind of sample would we use to either confirm, uh, or you know, to, to confirm whether or not um, the pathogen was present? When I first started doing this, uh, and I talked to my my colleague, <coughs> uh, Dr. Kevin Kazakos at Purdue University, he said to me, w one of the problems we have with this is uh, we haven't quite figured out how to take samples in indoor environments. Um, what they usually do is take a sample of the, the feces from the, an area either inside the building or outside the building that, that's called a latrine. Uh, you, I guess you can figure out why. Um, and this is an area where there are um, piles of, of uh, raccoon feces. So what they do is they, they take uh, uh, a sample of the raccoon feces and they bring it into the laboratory and they, um, they spin it out and they, they, they uh, plate it out and then they take a look for the uh, raccoon. Uh, they look for the parasite and they also look for the eggs. And by the way, these eggs are um, almost indestructible. Mm -hmm. hmm. Almost indestructible. The only way... To, to kill them is with heat right now. So the, the, the recommendations out there are either um, fire or boiling water. Wow. And that's... Yep. And so when, when I do the sample and I'm looking for them in indoor settings, we, uh, we use the allergen bags and we vacuum them. So we, we vacuum huge surface areas so we make sure we don't miss anything. The exposure is not... It, an air sample would never see these. Um, they're sticky. They don't float very well. So you'd have to get one that was falling from, from above and catch it on the way down. Because it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't go towards your air sampler. So we should the probability of you capturing Shouldn't recommend they burn their house down. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. I said we should not recommend they burn their house down then. Oh, it, it's sad. There have been a number of... Uh, situations where that has, has occurred because people have been uh, torching different surfaces in the attic to get rid of it, and poof, wow, it's a bad thing. Yeah, the, there's a lot of fluff in houses, and but uh, we we could cool. clean this up, I assume. It, clean it up? Yes. yes. Okay. Yes. Just yes, it, it can be cleaned up. The first way to clean it up is um, uh, through normal cleanup channels. You know. 
some sweeping, some... Um, well, you have to be careful with the sweeping. You want to make sure that you don't aerosolize this stuff because there are other organisms. This, this is feces, so all the, all the waste organisms of the raccoon are out there. So, so there's going to be some bacteria, virus, uh, probably some fungus, uh, maybe even other parasites, you know, some protozoa, another weird worm or something like that. So maybe and they'll all be in there. So you want to make sure that it's not really dry and aerosolized. And um, and the other aspect is anybody who does this work should be in personal protective equipment, including, um, at a minimum, a, a HEPA respirator and goggles. Excellent. And and coveralls. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Gilbert. Uh, we really appreciate you joining us here this week on IAQ Radio. We <laughs> want to uh, hope you get over that little cough there soon, and uh, hopefully we can have you back. We got through about half of our questions here. So thanks again for joining us, Dr. Charles Gilbert of the Epidemiology and Toxicology Institute. Next week, we're going to have Bill Rose, research architect from the University of Illinois at, on the show. And uh, Dr. Gilbert, before you go, do you have any contact information or a website our listeners can go to to learn more about your company? Uh, nope. Sure. There um, yes. Um, my uh, website is at the, um, I believe it's EpiTalkInst. Yep, I believe that's it, E-P-I dot, dot org. EpiTalksInst dot org. And that's we'll put correct. it up on the website after the show. Well, thank you very kindly. And if they, they do want to call, uh, the phone number here is 631-930. 9114. All right. Well, thank you and so much. And thank you very much. You've all been very, very kind for letting me drone on. Our thank pleasure. You. Our pleasure. All right. This is the Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guest, Dr. Charles of the Epidemiology and Toxicology Institute. Uh, before we go, I want to thank my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. Always a pleasure, Joe. Uh, my pleasure. Of course, uh, Environmental Annie and Koalecki for joining us. Thank you, Joe. And the Cyber Jockey back. He's back. Thanks, yep, Jack. It's great. It's great to be here, Joe. Thank you, Zach. Zach Zlotnick joining us again for a, a little cameo appearance here this week. And most importantly, I want to thank our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 